Live from the island of mist and Muncie, Indiana, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. So, um, how's it on the island of Mist, Nick? It's, uh, kind of foggy, and, um, I'm in this rocket ship right now trying to figure out this code on a piano that's kind of difficult, but I'll tell you what, Tim, when you're going through an old library, and you see a neat little book with no markings on it, you open it up, and there's a picture inside that moves, don't touch it. That's all I'm gonna say. Whatever you say, I never actually played Mist. Oh, well, you should've. Actually... <laughs> little sidetrack. I found out that you can get Mist on the iPad for like $4.99, and if I had an iPad, I would so completely buy that right now. If I had an iPad, so would I. Um, <laughs> you know, the iPad is is becoming a little too quickly one of those things that I would really like to have, and I'm, I'm getting a little alarmed by this. So anyways, you guys need to hunt down a, a linking book for me so I can get it. Well, I guess I probably actually come, have to find the linking book. So I might be a while here, Tim. <laughs> okay. But. That's fine. Um, you're just missing our company here in Muncie, Indiana, which is where I stay sometimes, in case listeners didn't know. Sometimes while I teach two days a week uh, at Taylor University at my alma mater, I stay with my friend John Baylor, who is sitting right next to me here in Muncie, Indiana. Say hi, John. Well, hello. Good to be here. John, uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, I kind of know who you are, but some people don't. Well... I pretend to be a teacher as much as possible, um, rather than a student, which is what I really am at this stage in life. Um, I teach in a couple of first-year composition classes, not the creative writing, but the basic college writing. Some of the same tips and tricks apply. And I'm here studying creative writing. While I'm in school, I'm mostly doing like literary fiction, you know, like the doll stuff that only a professor could love. And when I'm outside of school, then I'm I'm much more drawn to to, to fantasy writing, towards uh, very imaginative writing, worlds of their own. Mm -hmm. oh, we don't like that sort of stuff in the podcast. <laughs> no, not at all. You, you won't fit in here at all. No, uh, I, I met John from, uh, he was, we lived in Swallow Robin at Taylor Upland, mm -hmm. and uh, that's where we met. Sounds like you lived inside a giant bird. <laughs> uh, two giant birds. That's yeah. true. One bird inside another bird. Yeah, devouring They're each nesting other. birds, no pun intended. <laughs> but yeah, we obviously realized that uh, we had some things in common. So we, we, I can't say that we kept in touch as often as I would have liked, but uh, it's worked out very well. Uh, stay, he had a place for me to stay down here and get me involved in some uh, philosophical discussions, which, you know, we like that kind of stuff around here. That's true. That's true. And it's nice to have a writer who's on the same page as me. So Tim's been great company as well. <laughs> Basically for John to complain about Ball State <laughs> Secular School about but anywho, I think John will be a fun addition today uh, as we get into our story school. So today's story school is on discovery. And there are a couple aspects that we could go with this. In fact, when Nick first proposed this subject, I was thinking he meant in the sense of how an author kind of discovers his work while he's in the process of writing it. But Nick, you had uh, something a little different in mind. Yeah, my initial con uh, conception was more the idea of discovery as a narrative uh, device or like a what keeps you reading. I guess the most obvious example of discovery as a narrative device would be mysteries, where there's a question put in front of you, you know, who killed Dr. Sartan, Sartan, and then the rest of the book's kind of uncovering clues, and you're the reader along with the protagonist is trying to figure it out, and you're discovering more and more. But the more I was thinking about it, the more I think that idea of discovery can be used in lots of different ways, and sometimes is without us thinking about. I brought it up, I think, unknowingly, originally back in our podcast on video games and interactive fiction, because video games often use that sense of discovering the next level, the next movie. Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. But I was thinking, like, like in fantasy novels, a good fantasy novel seems like every sequel presents, lets you discover some new aspect of the world. That there's this sense of always having something new to go along with your old, kind of, you know, the whole parable of new treasures along with old treasures. A good fantasy world that has depth to it, you, there's always something new around the corner. At least that's the impression you want to get. I mean, even so, you know, less uh, 
Well, my big fantasy novel I talk about in here is uh, Wheel of Time, and for the first five, six books, you're constantly going to new countries, new places, new... And they're like 600-page books, so they always feel like you're you're not reading the same... You know, they're not revisiting the same places too often. Now, you want some of the revisitation, because that's a nice anchor. I think that sense of uh, the reader always feeling like they're discovering something new about the character or the world or about something is a really nice, uh, subtle... No, I don't know about subtle, but nice hook. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the main thrust of, of most stories, or at least as you're writing it, because the author, well, if the author has done his homework, he knows all the details about what's going on in the background and stuff. But you have to be able to present it to your reader in such a way that, you know, they're excited to find out what happens next and that it's not just like completely spelled out for them. Well, I would put it a little different from just what's happening next, though that's part of it, but the sense that there's an actual new element being presented. I, I guess I think of it more in the terms of sequels and additions. Like, I have no idea how uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs does 26 Tarzan novels. <laughs> yeah, at some point, it seems like it's all going to be old head and you just replace the ape with the leopard or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, real engaging series, like uh, the, like the Harry Potter series. They're constantly, you're adding more and more to the world in every book. It's not just the same, you know, the structure's the same. Yeah. But the the context keeps changing. So when you open a new book, you never know exactly what you're going to get. It's it's um, it's like a nice, nice uh, you know, a different coat of paint or a new room in a mansion. It's the same house. But, oh, I didn't know that was there. So that good writers will present parts that you didn't even know you didn't know. That's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this is where we're, we're having little different perspectives on it because i can certainly also see in like the miyazaki sense when you never quite know what he's gonna pull out of his hat next yeah like that but that's also an interesting point in the sense of if it's an ongoing storyline you may think that you know everything that's going to happen but then you still see a new side to someone which is often quite uh interesting in terms of again like you said if we know if it's been going on for a while, we think we already know, but then something completely new shows up. That's a nice thing to... It, it kind of goes back to... Actually, no, it doesn't go back to because we never actually had this discussion. Um, <laughs> the, the illusion of depth that uh, we've sometimes talked about doing, the idea that there's a lot more to the world and to your characters than initially meets the eye. And I think that's something, going back to your idea of discovery, the original um, conception of how an author comes up with their ideas or discovers their idea, I think story, plot, elements often come from some throwaway detail um, the author put in that you're like, oh, wait a second, I could make that a bigger part. You know, you say at some point, oh yeah, and he had a sister. And then you're like, oh wait, why don't we bring the sister in as a whole character at this point? That could be a lot of uh, working back to add a whole new character, but yeah. Well, I, again, I'm, I'm, my mind's still in this sort of serialized, because I've written a lot of stuff in that sort of step-by-step manner. Oh, okay, yeah, that's true. Where, like, oh, I mentioned that, like, when I was writing Girl Called Snore, and, you know, it was chapters of 500 words for 180 chapters or something like that. Sometimes, something I, I wrote way back when, I thought, you know, oh, wait, I should keep consistent there and bring it back here and make it a bigger deal. and. That sort of, I guess, it connects to our idea of illusion of depth, where you, you add enough detail so that people feel like, okay, it's like this. And maybe John knows whether I'm going to quote this right or not, but I think it's Antov Chekhov said, if you have, he was a playwright, Russian playwright. Mm-hmm. If you put a shotgun on the wall, you should use it by Act 3 or whatever. Basically, everything's there for a reason. I kind of like the idea that there's some throwaway things that aren't there for any reason then to make it seem big, the world seem bigger than it actually is. Yeah, I think I, w- I would agree with that. In the Chekhov quote, he's he's talking about a gun that's sitting on the table. And this is, I mean, this is like a big deal right here. This isn't something that just shows up accidentally into a scene. But it seems like, especially in the in the world building genres, or in, I think, also historical fiction, which is a type of world building as well, there's going to be um, a sense of mystery that drives that drives the reader as they're going through the work. A sense that these are people that are that are living a very different life than what I'm living, and yet, and yet there, there's still this sense of common humanity. I read a fair amount of, of old, early English literature, medieval literature, these kind of things, and it has that, that same sense of just captivation, like this mystery of this is a world that is, that is and will always be so totally different than my own. And when you're, when you're in that kind of a setting, you're going to find mystery present 
as the author, you're going to you're going to find mystery and you're going to build mystery into that into that world that you're making. As a reader, you're going to stumble upon that mystery, and I, I think it's very important to to have a world bigger than what fits on the page in a way to be true to the mystery of the world, to be true to the the mystery and the the wonder of that's all around you. There have to be there have to be things that don't fit perfectly into place. If you put the gun on the table, like that's that's a big enough thing that um, it does more than just like open a sense of mystery. It, it opens a sense of oh crap, somebody's going to get shot with a gun. <laughs> that's true. That's um, true. But there's oh there's definitely like the idea of discovery or the idea of of mystery depends on on subtlety and depends on this idea of of not knowing everything. And a, a gun isn't isn't a subtle enough move, I think, to uh to pull off that. <laughs> no, actually, that's a really good distinction. And yeah, my analogy was not perfect there. My, I hear, here's a question for you. Do you think, and I, I don't know if I have an answer to this, that there's, um, especially in the world building genre, that there's people who build their world so detailed that the sense of mystery in the world doesn't come across because everything's so um, explained? I think it would be a possibility. I mean, obviously, like the the man who did more thorough world building than anyone before a sense was Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And and he he doesn't do it in such a way that everything is so thoroughly explained that there's no mystery. Yeah, he has a very mythological sense of right. And most of the mythology or most of his vision of his world doesn't even enter into the work. He only he only hints at it. Mm-hmm. Um, he he has this this phrase of the unattainable vista, which is is something that that you can see. It's it's this the unattainable vista would be the site or this place that you can see, you can hear about, but you can't ever actually go there. Um, and that's that's what gives it its power. That's what gives it its mystery. So when everybody, the uh, the elves travel to the West, you don't see the West because the West is an unattainable vista. Mm. I'd really like that because I feel like when I write my more mythological or types of fantasy, there's certain things that I don't want to explain with a 10-foot pole that, mm-hmm. that would destroy the entire point of writing it. Mm-hmm. That definition seems to make a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. And he's got a lot of discipline to make sure he doesn't cross those boundaries and leave everything explained. An interesting facet of the unexplored vista, especially in uh, Lord of the Rings with the West, is creating a sense of longing in a sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is what we have for heaven. Um, I mean, it works because it's unattainable and that makes you love it and long it for it all the more in a sense. And I think it's especially poignant in, in that, or really in a lot of fantasies where you get the sense of something wonderful and something beautiful. Sometimes it could, well, I guess I could say sometimes it's on the screen, but just the fact that you as an audience person can't get to it really draws you into it, which I guess is loosely related to discovery, but that was a thought I had talking about all that. I feel like there could be something else there. I have, I have, a, I have a change of subject, but I'm trying to think of. Well, maybe we'll come. We, we go in circles sometimes, so I'll do my change of subject. <laughs> go for it. Um, another thing I thought of with Discovery is that, that narrative engine of mystery, which I don't know if we always use it purposefully. And we were talking about fancy writers with their world building sometimes use it really well. But I don't know about other types of genres as much. But I think mystery novels, mystery TV shows, they use the, the act of the audience participating in the mystery, lets them get away with characters that don't have to be dynamic as much. Because the the world itself, the the changing facts, the world are dynamic, so that the characters themselves tend to be a little more stable. Mm-hmm. I, I I was I think my brother loves the loved the show Psych, and those guys are just goofballs. And the only reason that show works, well, they're funny, but they have to do something. Mm-hmm. So you do you put them in a mystery because a mystery has this sense of oh wait I have interest even though I I'm really just here to watch these two characters be silly. Yeah. But then I have this narrative tension. That might not exist otherwise. A lot of Doctor Who's are set up the same way. Yeah, I think sometimes, a lot of times, the inherent story structure, um, whether it be a genre like a mystery or in something else, can really, if you're using the structure right, it, it really contributes this sense of of giving the audience just as much as they need for a certain time, and then letting them ask the questions that they need to ask themselves. I was actually just watching this weekend some deleted scenes from Wally. Fantastic film, of course. But one of the deleted scenes involved another version of like the the, co- the autopilot, the robot uh, autopilot that was keeping the human ship out in space. 
he went off on his own and looked at some of the, the videos where it explained about the big and large company and they're saying, don't actually go back to Earth. It's not going to work and you know, all this kind of stuff. And what they realized is in the sequence of the story and that in that very early version of it, that it felt disjointed from the rest of it. It was the first time they had really cut away from Wally himself. And they're like, we, we should we should rework this. We need to keep focused on Wally because this feels kind of out of there. And so in the process of doing that, they kind of stretched out a bit more of the mystery of what's going on with this ship that's in outer space. Let the audience ask the questions themselves until they but following Wally until he got to they got to a point where he was on the bridge or they had met the captain already. And the captain started asking these questions of what's going on. And then you get your resolution after you've been developing the question for some time. That's interesting because I know sometimes, and this is something I've struggled with as a writer, trying to figure out how much I can get away with not saying and the audience following. Mm -hmm. find, find that balance between how much do I need to explain, how much can I just let sit there and they can connect the dots for me or for themselves, I guess, technically. And in some stories, you can be more vague than others. I told you, you know, I, I just read that story of yours, The House of Memories, where there's a lot of ambiguous stuff that happens and i think that's a story that you could you could come up with a couple different interpretations of it i've heard a couple different interpretations at this point <laughs> and which is fun which this is the, i think the first story i wrote that i wanted to be purposely ambiguous in in a lot of the elements to it that you you don't want you want this fog over the whole thing mm -hmm. which is not not a not a style i ne normally go with at least in that that concentrated a style no, it struck me as very different from the other stuff, but it really worked in the context of that story. Since it was a short story, there was you could get away with not explaining a lot. It was very Twilight Zone-esque, at least not explaining it explicitly. Yeah. But in, in a longer story where there, if there are sections that do go into more detail about something, then you're probably going to have to explain other things down the road. My mind has been very drawn towards the Twilight Zone for most of this discussion. <laughs> um, and actually, I... I I look at the Twilight Zone, um, actually when I, I give like a, a story of coming to faith, then I usually include a little episode, I won't go into this now, but but I, I even include Twilight Zone as part of this process for me, and um, definitely like a very important show for me, um, developing an interest in writing, developing an interest in storytelling, and mostly it is because of this, this sense of mystery, this sense of um, just the right amount of fog over everything, and then you get the the classic twist ending of a Twilight Zone that just <laughs> finally you and you intrigue the crap out of everybody that's been watching, <laughs> and and you really drive that that mystery home. Like you you hit the most profound moment of your story, and then leave them even though you've answered some of the mystery, leave them with the sense of like how incredible that mystery and its answer really was. Mm. Yeah, I, I like this idea that we're 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 kind of jumping around. That mystery is not just a good storytelling advice, but seems to have a a very unique draw for the reader, the sense of not just of discovering, but even having just enough unveiled and the rest left tantalizing. And I think that's a really, a really strong tool a writer can use Yeah. to reinforce points, to um, just capture the sort of emotions they want to want the, the reader to or viewer to feel. And, and I think it's very valid for both fantasy and more realistic situation. I mean, obviously, it's it's fantastic for fantasy. Part of the reason we love Miyazaki's worlds and other places like Narnia or the Land of Oz or whatever is that there's so much, you know, the boundaries of it are limitless. You could you always feel like if you go there, you could see other places and, and do other very cool things besides what you read about in the book. But at the same time, in life, we do have a lot of unanswered questions there's ambiguity sometimes and as long as you don't go too far and make the whole story the whole thing too ambiguous because i always hate that too when you're when they have some situation you're like well, what is the po point of that <laughs> um i guess we've, we've covered that ground before <laughs> but sometimes just not knowing you know well, what what would have happened and had situations been different sometimes even a character's motivations can seem human but not be entirely not be entirely black and white you know reasoning behind it just because we haven't talked about it for a while i'm going to throw in lost here i warned john this is like this is one that gets brought up a lot <laughs> well it's been a couple episodes i just want to just do a quick thing with the end and the whole what the island is i think that was one of those those elements that some reader or some viewers thought was both 
too explicit and others thought not enough. Because we're, we've been kind of talking about how the perfect sort of mystery is kind of not over-explaining things, but not leaving it too ambiguous. And I feel like a, a possible flaw of with the whole couple last episodes is for some people it's too much information about the audience, some people it's too little. I've heard probably more people saying too little than too much. Well, by too much, I mean like you go down and there's just this, you saw what was in the cave and it was it seemed disappointing because it's just this plug you pull out and they were like, what's this all about? Oh, okay, yeah. I gotcha. So, I don't know, I just, I, I thought that was a, a good example of, it seemed like this, striking this balance between having too nice of an answer and not an answer at all is the difficulty we have sometimes. Mm-hmm. Going off on a little different track, we've been following this mystery thread for a little bit. And looking at it from a filmmaking perspective, one thing that I think is sometimes tricky about leading an audience to to discover the story is sometimes that that idea of saying, holding back enough but not actually saying much with it. Or what was the way you put it? Holding back as much as possible and letting people get meaning out of it. Mm Mm-hmm. I've seen some student films and some, you know, there's probably some independent films out there and there are certain branch people who like this, where the meaning is so obscure when you, you really don't, you, you know they were trying to say something, but you haven't a clue what it was. <laughs> I remember this one film at the, uh, this was at Taylor actually for the Taylor Student Film Festival. They didn't have any romantic comedies like the Taylor trilogy, unfortunately, at Upland. <laughs> Um, but there, I remember there was this one from someone who had gone through the LA program, same one that I wound up doing, where the film was about this girl who made a sandcastle on the beach. Her brother came along and smashed it, and that was the end of the movie. <laughs> At least that's what I remember of it. And everyone around me was going like, what was that about? But for whatever reason, he uh, I think he won like Best Picture for the show. Not like it was like faculty choice sort of thing. Interesting. But they were seeing something that a lot of us didn't. And to a certain extent, this kind of goes against my how to read a story and kind of read into the author's perspective thing. But at the same time, if your meaning is so obscured, if you're not really leading the audience through, you know, helping them understand the story bit by bit, then I think you're missing something. An interesting story that was probably all right on the level of the right ambiguity that you know I, I watched him was uh, Secret of Kells. Oh yeah, that's true. There were elements of that that at the end you're like, what was that? I mean, you weren't. It wasn't too much, but there were parts you're like, what is that for exactly? Yeah, you were you were very intrigued by it. But I mean, I I guess the important thing for that movie is that it kept a focus for a character that you cared about, even though there were other things going on that you could kind of figure out symbolize something, but you weren't quite sure what. I got the feeling that you could you could get it on a repeat watch, and in the meantime, there is enough of an ongoing story with the main character that you could appreciate it. Oh, I, th- I think I agree with you. I just, that, that was the first one that came to mind for, you know, right on the, I don't know, on the board, but had elements of that, hmm, at the end of the movie, and you're thinking about it and trying to, at least you're overanalyzed like I do. Now, John, have you had your you're, you're basically teaching an expository class, right? Mm-hmm. You have you had your your students do much in terms of like what we're talking about, kind of leading a reader through um, your story. Um, well, as an expository writing sort of class, it's not it's not a story writing class, right? That's what I figured. Um, like I say, I, I a lot of the same tips and tricks apply. A lot of the things that I, I wish I saw more of in creative writing education, I just, in order to make myself happy, I bring them into my expository writing style class. Awesome. <laughs> um, let's see. I, I wouldn't say a, a sense of mystery exactly. The general shape of a paper, I, I do indicate, like, in, in an intro, I'm not looking for, like, a typical, like, a thesis statement kind of thing. But I have tried to build this sense. I need to see the elements that are coming into the paper later on. You don't need to spell them out for me directly as you're introducing your paper. But whatever comes in later into your paper, I should see at least at least a hint of that thing to come. Which is, like I say, a lot of the same tips and tricks apply definitely in, um, in fiction writing and creating a fictional world. Mm-hmm. You, you drop those subtle hints that aren't, aren't quite enough for the reader to figure out what's going to happen, but are enough for the reader to figure out this thing, this question that's raised right here is going to continue to be intriguing throughout throughout the paper, throughout the story. So writing a good paper and writing a good stories, basically just leaving enough breadcrumbs so that they can get to uh, the witch's house. <laughs> yeah, and, and when it when it comes to a story, I mean, or when it comes to a just straight college composition paper, it's 
very, very simply, like, yes, please get me to her house already. Like, um, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't need to have that great of an adventure along the way. No, no. <laughs> but man, you, you really, you really need to figure out how to get me there. Um, so in, in a way, like it is, it is a, a similar kind of journey, but, uh, but it's like, just, I, I need to take the basic steps here. Since, what, since I'm on the Isle of Mist, I guess I'll make, when we started talking about using this as a topic, I thought I missed a lot because that's one of those games where you, you just start and there's there's no explanation hardly, there's no nothing. It's just interesting things to touch and what does it do and how does it relate to this other thing. And I think that's why it was so popular at the time. It had this very strong sense of trying to make sense of everything around you. I, I've all, I'm always interested to, for books to see, especially at the beginning. You no know, fancies normally start you off, well, and traditionally. I don't know if they do as much anymore. Start you off with, you know, in the backwater town so that you can have the sense of discovering the world with the main character. But I've read some, like uh, this science fiction book called Paradox by John Meany. I had to look at my bookshelf, which throws you right in the middle. And it is probably on the edge of how much you, sh you can get away with not explaining for almost the <laughs> entire book. Uh -huh. But it works. I mean, it, it was a fascinating book for that reason. Well, that and the fact that it's written in this almost poetic style, like for... 350 pages hmm. and it's like a hard science like math and equations and stuff sort of novel but i think that's a very interesting thing from a writer's point of view seeing finding that balance and how much can you get away with explaining but not coming out and saying you know whatever there's a traditional way of introducing worlds is mm -hmm. okay that was kind of vague at the end but <laughs> <laughs> i i think we i think we got the general idea so, but yeah, and and Lost does that a lot too. Just to yeah, and that pushes that, that pushes for especially for TV audiences pushes the limit of how much you can get away with not saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so shall we wrap this up? Or? Yeah, I think I think we should wrap it up this up somehow. Um, <laughs> have we come to any conclusions, gentlemen? <laughs> it's a fine line, but it's a good line to find to use uh, some platitudes. That's true. <laughs> I think we've talked a lot about, again, leading the audience, about keeping a sense of mystery in it, but also in the sense of giving the illusion that your story is, is deeper and than just the very obvious, like John was saying, you don't want your story points to be blindingly obvious. You should get the kind of get the feeling that there's a lot going on and that you're just kind of discovering it piece by piece. You're not like, oh, and now we're entering act two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you plan your whole TV seasons that way, well, which might be okay. That's true. <laughs> Babylon 5 reference, in case you missed it. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> All right. I guess that means we're ready to go on the soundtrack. So, I'm up first, going with my love of the game Mist, and also going with my advice from last episode where I should pick people who I can pronounce their names, mainly Maze Dude. Um, <laughs> I decided to pick the remix by Maze Dude. So, this is Mist Shrooms, which is several of the themes from Mist, which is a very uh, minimalist score, done in an acid jazz style. Yeah, when I when I started listening to this song, I wasn't expecting jazz. I mean, <laughs> Maze Dude... Maze Dude does jazz occasionally, but I was certainly expecting something a little more techno-trippy. Well, he was trying to find a way, from what I understand, to get all the different, like, little themes together, and he, he thought acid jazz was loose enough to pull it off. So, all right. this is Miss Shrooms, remixed by Maze Dude. Enjoy.
And that was Mist Shrooms, right? Yes, which I enjoy. It's from his American album, which is wonderful, and you should go download. Actually, that's the second one from that album of his that we've had, wasn't it? Yeah, he actually has, he's working on a new album called American Pixels, which I'm going to have to buy. Okay. He's actually, like, licensing it and everything, so... Oh, be official original music? No, it's oh, okay. uh, he, he remixes. He's kind of interesting. He remixes mainly American composers, which is different than some of those people. And so he doesn't do Nobu Masu all that often, or that's true. Other things. Yeah, because we did that other song, uh, Carvosity, from the James Bond game a few episodes back with uh, Tommy Tallarico. I think was the one who had doing had written that particular song. Tommy Tallarico from Video Games Live. Yes, concert fame. Very nice. All right, that was probably more video game music talk than most people <laughs> wanted. Uh, but we'll move on to our next segment now, Project Update. So it's been a little while since we've done a Project Update. So um, what are you up to, Nick? Um, about 5'10". No, um, I am, well, I'm, I'm putting the finishing touches on my flash fiction collection, which I think I said last time we did a project update but basically just the cover needs done and then i'll print them off and they're being sold for raising money for the dc trip at st john either they're all, you can find them online i mean it's not like they're exclusive or anything true but your author's notes about them will be exclusive that's to true it's, it's a special reason to come and buy them so i i haven't seen i haven't got one yet to look at and make sure it looks good but i think it should be a pretty good collection when i was going through it there it's a relatively diverse collection of stories oh yeah you've got some sci-fi you've got some comedy you've got some you've got that one story about that's about a philharmonic orchestra skydiving while yeah performing. that's a good one I that's like that one. that's worth the cover price alone. Well, so you have that one, and then you have like the guy who tries to commit suicide in the embassy. Oh yeah, yeah. you know, you yeah, know, so they're kind stark. of go from very tragic to very ridiculous. Yeah, and then everything in between. So I think it should be a pretty good collection when it's done, and I'll just be happy to have it all. I like to back my stuff up in some sort of nice print version. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so easy to do now with Hulu. Exactly, Lulu. Lulu. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't stream internet videos. <laughs> Yet. So, yet. Yes, not yet. Um, also, I am writing the third book of Strand Fred again, which I know I think I've said here that I was going to start any day now, but I actually have. Nice. And I know that's, speaking of Discovery, that was a case where you had started writing uh, for a while a bit, and then you realized you needed to do something else, and you had to scrap some of your stuff. Yeah, I wrote like a 1,500 words, said, oh, wait, this isn't working, crossed it all out, had this ginormous brainstorm that I had to go and write up real quick. Then I had to revise, I think, just one chapter. I was thinking I was going to have to do two. I don't think so. You should save that scrapped section for a deleted scenes like thing for when you're famous. You'll People will say, oh, this is how it could have gone. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> no, it begins in my notebook, actually. I've, I've started writing my notebook again as opposed to on the computer because I miss the paper. Mm -hmm. um, the computer is faster as opposed to, you know, because when I write it on paper, I have to write and then I have to retype it in and I'm not a slow typer, but I'm not a speedy typer. I've seen you. You still use the two-finger No, it's method. like two-finger plus. Uh, whatever. It's like an advanced version. <laughs> but but it's, a good way to, it's a good way to edit. I think for long projects, I like to write them on paper because as I'm retyping it, I'm editing it. It's very hard for me to edit substantially when it's on already on the screen. Now, you said going back to Notebook. I guess Buckethead had been written on um, by typing. Oh, yeah. The Buckethead was, I think, the last main thing. Uh... Girl Called Snort was all written on computer originally. The flash fictions, most of them were written on in my little journal first. Okay. But yeah, I go. So I have the like I have an entire notebook for Squire. Most of Squire was written in notebook to begin with. Mm -hmm. All of it actually, I think, was written. But yeah. Now, have we talked about the day after on here yet? We probably mentioned it, but I guess since you just read the, have you finished it then? All of them. No, actually, I've only read yours and Natasha's. Um, I'm I'm holding off of reading Nate's until I read Pandora's box, since I have a copy of that now. Oh, yes. And I still need to read Keith's. So anyways, the day after, if we haven't mentioned it here before, is a little short story collection where we kind of self-publish this as a writing project between friends. We picked a theme, in this case, the day after, and everyone had to pick a different genre and write a story less than 10,000 words that somehow applied to that theme. And I tried my hand at gothic horror, which was... Quite entertaining, actually. Yeah, and I, th I thought it came off pretty well. Try to channel some Poe and some Hawthorne. So. Mm -hmm. And you got a little Twilight Zone in there. Yeah. I don't know if that was intentional or not. Not intentional, but I, I mean, I it was ambiguous. 
You'll take the comparison. I'll take the comparison. Yeah, hey, tell me, I look, I, it's not like Twilight Zone. I'll be like, awesome. <laughs> Something worked. How about you, Tim? What are you doing? I, I saw that you and a friend of yours were at the Apple Festival. Oh, yes, that's true. Uh, Leo did visit the Apple Festival. If you don't remember, Leo is actually this Muppet I have. It's an actual Muppet from the Whatnot Workshop, which you can get at FAO Schwartz. Although I hear that they're going to make a, a cheaper version. Like Apparently there's like this kit that was that someone spotted at a Toys R Us. That, so you could... You, you, it's it's kind of like Build-A-Bear. You, you interchange mm -hmm. different uh, elements to make your own uh, Muppet. Build-A-Fozzie? <laughs> it's not quite that. It's just the whatnots, the, like the blank single color characters and stuff. But it's very fun. And Leo Leo is is my custom-made Muppet. And he uh, he and I were around Apple Festival doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I actually took him through, the, through a hay maze, which was interesting because it was only like two bales high. And so I'm like sticking this puppet above my head, trying to crawl on my back through the whole thing. Um, that will hopefully come out soon. That's that's a premonition of some things with Leo that will hopefully be uh, in the pipeline. In the meantime, we're trying to finish up. We we mentioned this earlier. I'm trying to finish up the Taylor Trilogy uh, special edition DVD. Uh, I've almost finished the commentary, like kind of cleaning up some of the audio and finishing up the commentary files and stuff. But it. Well, with man running a class for the first time has taken up a lot more of my energy than I expected, and so that that's been a frequent distraction, which for good reason. I really need to somehow in the next two weeks find time to make that uh, Taylor trilogy music video. On yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see if it happens before the baby comes. That's true. Yeah, that's a big project for you. That's coming up in a few weeks. Yeah, everything. The world ends once again at the end of my. <laughs> The world as you know it, yeah. The world as I know it, yeah, because I remember before Fio was born, we planned everything, and then, like, there was nothing on our calendar after the date of Fio, when Fio was supposed to be born. Like, we, like everything just ended. <laughs> like, it was a brick wall. We didn't have any idea what life was going to be like afterwards. It's not quite that bad this time since we've been through it once. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, though. When it's due sometime, and you have a, because you're doing a, Natasha's going to, well, I don't know if you want to go through this, into this on the podcast, but... <laughs> Most likely, uh, the baby will come around, right around the last couple days of October. Okay. So, we haven't quite nailed down what we're going to do in terms of podcast scheduling during that time, but be forewarned, it'll probably be a little podcasting different. at like 2 a.m. in the morning, I think. <laughs> Next thing, give me a call and say, Tim, it's time. I'm like, no. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> and hopefully have some sort of filter to take out baby crying. <laughs> Now, John, I know you're, of course, busy with your teaching and with your studies and stuff. Is there anything in the process in the making that you would like to care to share? Well, studying creative writing really does get in the way of creative writing more than more than what it should. Um, like I mentioned, when I'm when I'm not in school, then I'm I'm working on generally fantasy, and since that's not really in the works right now, I'll just I'll just skip over that one. Um, at this point, I'm looking at working pretty exclusively on my thesis next semester, and then still teaching a couple classes. And that's going to be a, a collection of, of short stories, mostly stories about longing for human connection. The, uh, the natural environment is, is very important to me in general and, and very, very important in, um, in these, these particular stories. And I try to bring in a lot of supernatural description without without necessarily supernatural events. So these are, for the most part, realistic stories. But I still, oh, I, I borrowed this uh, bog maiden character who I'd invented for some of my fantasy work, who's sort of like a an evil lady of the lake. And so she'll she'll show up in a little bit of my of my realistic fiction as well. Nice. Um, just uh, trying to make the writing of literary fiction as interesting and as entertaining for me as what it can be. <laughs> that sounds like a thesis I would like to read. <laughs> Definitely. It doesn't sound very dry. Now, there may be a project in the future uh, that we'll have to hook you up with. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, well, I would definitely be interested. I'm, I'm very impressed with the, uh, the work that you guys do. Very intrigued. Oh, thank you. Yeah, mm -hmm. John, John is one of the few people who has expressed much interest in the story projects, and for that <laughs> is, reason alone is one reason why we have maintained our friendships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that wins you like ten thousand bonus points. Yeah, a, a collection of something like seven people know it exists. Right. <laughs> Well, I, I'm I'm happy to say I am one of them. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, will when you're all finished, will this be one of those, since it's like a master's thesis? Is it one of these things that you'll have bound and? Um, it it will be 
it will be bound and kept in the Ball State Library. Awesome. It may be a, a project that I that I put a little bit more work into. I'll I've got oh a very brief publication record, but I part of my thesis work I think also is going to be trying to really sharpen some of these stories up, get a few more individual publications. It'll be a a small short story collection. Um, a lot of stories in it, but they're for the most part fairly short. So small in terms of length of the overall book. And it, it may be something that I that I try to do a little bit more work with, but the project as it stands, like I say, will be will be in the Ball State Library. Nice. So in a year from now or so, when you're at Ball State, make sure you look that up. So here's a question, just as a writer: by short, what do you mean word length? I'm just curious. Well, there's kind of a variable range. Um, I've got a, a few stories that are 750 to a thousand words. Okay, so yeah, so real flash fiction sort mm-hmm, of stuff. Right. Okay. Um, so, so several that are in that length, um, a lot of them that are, that are going to be like five to 10 double spaced manuscript pages. Um, so a, a few flash fiction and a few that are a little, a little longer than what really fits into that category. Okay. Because for, because for a long time, uh, the only story you could write would ha- they would have to be between two and 4,000 or 10. I don't know why. That's just how they all worked out. Mm-hmm. I was curious. Took me a long time to figure out how to write something less than a thousand words. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least, or decently well. Well, hopefully, I've, I've, I actually, I feel like my shorter ones generally are, are tighter works. So I, I think I'm, I'm getting at least a little bit of a feel of how to pull it off. But like I say, I'll, I'll need to get a, a little bit more of a publication record to prove it. I think. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. I guess that means we're ready to go on to our next segment, which is a new segment. This segment is called "What If." So for this new segment, this is kind of uh, Crackpot's Corner taking on a a little different spin, a little different kind of focus. Still very uh, speculative, but we're going to take a look and see what if one of our favorites, or anti-favorite, storytellers, whether it be a writer, whether it be a filmmaker, what if they worked on something else that was famous but was not one of their own? Hopefully that made sense. If not, you'll get it in a second, because today we're going to talk about what if J.R.R. Tolkien wrote Star Wars? This is completely not, well, just vaguely related. It seems to me that actually both Lucas and Tolkien have this sense that low-tech stuff is something worth protecting. You know, the whole Ewoks destroying the Stormtroopers that everyone always makes fun of is still kind of his idea of that kind of... Um, so you're saying Ewoks equals hobbits? Or hobbits, uh, Ents. I think Ents on Endor would be awesome. Oh, man, that would be pretty cool. <laughs> Come on, because then the Empire's Isengard and you're you're set. Well, I mean, you know, you've already got Count Dooku in both settings, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) In the form of Christopher Lee. But that is, you know, they both kind of go along the hero's quest, uh, much like Joseph Campbell. I mean, I guess they're not out to destroy something, but you do, in both cases, have that that one object that is quite valuable and that is kind of a key to taking down something powerful. Of course... In Lord of the Rings, it's, it's the one ring through the whole thing. In the first Star Wars movie, you've just got R2's Death Star plans. And also the, the great power is also the great temptation in both of them. Um, so the power of the ring is also the thing that can destroy you. The power of the Force is also the thing that can pull you over to the dark side. Right. Yeah, that's true. I, now, here's my, here's my question. What would... Tolkien has a very distinct, purposeful outlook on the world that obviously goes through all of... Lord of the Rings, how would that affect how the Star Wars universe comes to us? You know, that's interesting. It would really change the whole face of Star Wars in that sense, because you wouldn't have this very pantheistic force. I don't know what you would replace it with. I mean, would the Jedi Knights just be typical Knights? I guess they wouldn't necessarily have... Oh, I, I, actually, I don't really know. Would they have magical powers and stuff? Or Because that seems to be something Tolkien generally regulates to... The only, you know, the the Maiar, which are the wizards, like Gandalf, was an order of that. Well, you have some magical things attached to Aragorn, though. I mean, not in the strict sense, but he has, you know, healing and the, he can lead the dead army and stuff. Well, that's true. I mean, you could see a, I could see a Jedi sort of thing there. I guess a lot of times the idea of power in, in Tolkien's works comes sometimes more from who the person is. Like, it sometimes seems like they have a greater power by association. You know, Aragorn is has some healing and stuff like that because he comes from this certain bloodline. 
the, the men of Numenor. But even that was, in a sense, their gifts were given to them from having been of, you know, noble race. They had they helped the elves. They were very mighty and chivalrous. I don't know. You could take that too far and say that Tolkien was advocating monarchies and eugenics and stuff, which I don't think he would have been. Um, no. Well, not the, not the eugenics, at least. <laughs> I don't know if he would have complained too much about monarchies. <laughs> well, that's probably not. True. Not if it's going to be Aragorn. No. Well, <laughs> well, if it was Aragorn, I don't know that any of us would really complain. But <laughs> You know, Star Wars, especially the six movies in total, is kind of this whole finding this balance, which I'm not sure ever exists in a, in a Tolkien setting. But there, but the, in the Tolkien setting, there's such a sense of longing, such a sense of things passing away, mm-hmm. which I think would be a very interesting addition to a to the to the atmosphere of Star Wars. That could be interesting in the sense of if you had a greater a greater sense of of sadness and longing for the old Republic after it had been passed away. We had actually just talked about that during the break. Uh, John brought that up as something. Tell us what you said about the old Republic earlier. Well, I mentioned the idea of the unattainable vista in our earlier session, and that I first heard about that idea in a conversation. When I first heard it, I thought it was Lucas's idea, and I looked it up later and found it was wrong. But uh, my brother had presented this idea of unattainable vista to me and said that the the Old Republic, in the original Star Wars series, the Old Republic was one of these unattainable vistas. It was something that was so great and so grand and glorious, and part of what made that possible was that you never saw it. Then the new movies come around and they show this Old Republic all the time, and it's not really as, as grand and as glorious as what you might have you might have invented in your own imagination. Once you see it up there, it can never be as good as what you've imagined. Now, I, I, f- I feel like I should um, mention, in Lucas' defense to an extent, that in the first Star Wars novelization, it does talk about how the old days, or the last days of the Old Republic, were kind of rotted out with corruption, and that it was kind of a, a shell of its former glory. There's a certain sense in where the Old Republic, the, the best days of it, were far behind even before the prequels came. That mm-hmm. prologue's very interesting, actually, to read. I've, I used to have an old copy of the novelization. And and it really, it really gives you an idea of how much... I mean, people complain about the prequels having too much politics stuff, and to a sense, I, I agree. But if you look at that, the prologue, which was written way back before even Empire Strikes Back came out, I mean, it talks about politics and corruption and stuff like that, and which would seem very out of place in comparison with the first Star Wars movie. I mean, they talk about the Senate being being dissolved and stuff like that, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe there there would be a much stronger sense, like you mentioned, of, of longing for that old republic, longing for that unattainable vista, and this utter sense of complete tragedy that this that this great world has fallen. And that would perhaps be a little more uh, a little more in line with Tolkien's vision. And I think it'd be interesting, but I think I, I think the idea that Empire is this kind of faceless technological beast would actually be very much in line with Tolkien. Mm-hmm. If you would do science fiction, I mean, it sounds—it's certainly in line with uh, C.S. Lewis and the the ideas he get in that hideous strength. Which I still need to read. That—that's the only book in that trilogy I haven't read yet. It's a—it's pretty interesting, different sort of book. Uh-huh. By far the most cerebral, but yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of uh, anti-industrialization in Tolkien. I think he's still—he's a lover of civilization, but not necessarily of uh, technological solutions to all of man's problems. Yeah, and I think maybe maybe that would be he'd have a str- uh, a different little different angle on the empire, but I could, yeah, that sort of that the techno- technology as an answer to things wouldn't work. I feel kind of bad trying to say what Tolkien would think. I don't know if that's <laughs> <laughs> that. Yeah, but you know this whole yeah because saying something like that assumes you're you're as smart as him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. True, but th- this whole segment, I think, is meant to be taken a little tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's, <laughs> we don't claim to be authorities on the subject, but, you know, based from what we know, it's fun to speculate. One character in Dimension, I imagine, would be quite different. It would be, uh, like, Han Solo and the Smugglers and stuff. I can't imagine that, because, you know, in the Star Wars universe, that's something that's kind of glorified to extend, the, you know, the rogues and the uh, exploring the underbelly of, of the universe. And I, I can't imagine that'd be something that, uh, that Tolkien would get that part, that behind very well. I mean, unless, unless you, he might take it in a direction kind of like the Rangers, like if they were actually like protecting society in the midst of the, the empire rather than just strictly working for themselves. But I can't imagine him taking actual 
thieves and smugglers and making them glamorous in a way. I mean, not that I don't love Han Solo and stuff. I think also the Jedi would have to do more singing. <laughs> <laughs> Jedi elves, that's a thought. Yeah. Oh yeah, the ancient Jedi poetry. <laughs> I think that would be awesome. And I'm pretty sure most people would want Jar Jar Binks to be Gollum. <laughs> Yeah, we could we could trust Tolkien to not put Jar Jar in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, now, if Peter Jackson was doing Star Wars, though, you know, then you there would the El Jedi wouldn't actually be all that much different. They'd still be as emotionless as ever, probably. In fact, probably more Vulcan-like. <laughs> I'm True. I'm being a little hard on Peter Jackson there, but I was <laughs> I always thought his elves were kind of missing that joyfulness. Which, I mean, to give him credit, it's hard to do. It'd be hard to do. Doing, to recapture doing elves. elves as Tolkien write them would be very hard visually, I think. Yeah. Especially from modern sensibility. Anyway, that's that's some interesting. Some things, surprisingly, would not be all that much different. Other things, I imagine, would be quite different. Well, there's a, there's definitely a, a mythic view of the world in both of them. And I, you mentioned Campbell already. But uh, oh, Lucas is very much interested in myth and the way a myth pans out. And obviously, yeah. Tolkien is is deeply invested in that. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, Obi Wan Kenobi is a wizard, so I think he and Gandalf would get along pretty well. I mean, once yeah. they got over theological issues, differences. Right. <laughs> so, so are we saying Jabba is basically Shalob? <laughs> uh, I think Shalob is more threatening. <laughs> Possibly more disgusting. Yeah, I'd say I'd compare uh, Shalob closer to the Rancor, actually. <laughs> I'd say though the worlds would still be very interesting. Most definitely. But I remember reading a letter from Tolkien about people trying to make Lord of the Rings into a movie back when he was alive and talking about how things, or maybe just Hobbit, but and his issues with certain things of the, their scripts and stuff. And I, I bet he would be a very detailed director. Oh yeah, which would, I'm be, sure. which would be cool. But yeah, I bet he'd be, be every every shot or at least every visual would be important for some sort of reason. Uh huh. Although I, I really can't imagine Tolkien directing anything. He was so much more of a linguist than he was a visual kind of person. At least the way, again, this is the way I have come to think of him. I mean, I suppose I'm sure he and Lewis visit the movies and stuff, but I don't know. If, I wonder if that's how where they got their uh, their joy of uh, of storytelling. Probably not. But it's it's interesting to think about. Anyway, that was our inaugural what if. Yeah, I, I think it, it paid to talk, start off with two things we know a whole lot about. <laughs> <laughs> so, this has been another crazy episode of Your Old Trains of Thoughts. Nick, you know, our contact, uh, we have not, our comment boards have been kind of kind of quiet lately. Yes, they have. They've been, they've been, they've been downright dead. So, uh, maybe we shouldn't, we, we need to remind them of where our website is. Our website is derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com com spelled c-o-m it's pretty easy to find just type that in and uh, of course you can also email us if that's the way you prefer to communicate uh if you want to be a little more private about it that is at derailedtrains at gmail.com you can also skype tim at <laughs> no you cannot actually i probably won't even be on even if you tried this is probably the first time i booted up skype in quite a while otherwise yeah uh, subscribe to us on itunes oh yeah if you haven't already do so now and write us a review yes do it now <laughs> um for my soundtrack uh we're we got an all maze dude episode i was kind of at a loss for what to do for this topic since probably my repertoire of video games is maybe a little less diverse so unfortunately i'm doing another final fantasy uh remix. boo no one likes final fantasy <laughs> and this one from Final Fantasy VII, no less. Which, actually, I guess is an improvement. Usually I pick six or nine, because those are my favorites. But this is... You know, every Final Fantasy, at some point, you visit this very mystical place that apparently no one has visited for centuries, and that holds great secrets to discovering the how the, this whole world works. That's very on topic. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's one reason why I chose this song. Uh, so there was another reason for it. So this song is, again, from Final Fantasy VII. It's called Space Station of the Ancients. And it's remixed. The song from the game is called Listen to the Cries of the Planet. And this is from one of those very mystical areas of the game. And uh, it's, again, another maze dude, but in a much different style. This is the kind of techno, scratchy stuff that... Uh, Makes me love maze dude. Yeah. <laughs> 
and makes other people think he's just kind of strange. But it's fun. You never know what he's going to pull out of his hat next. So hopefully you'll enjoy. In the meantime, this has been Tim. This has been Nick. And this has been John. And we'll see you next time. Adios.